The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data. Stay tuned for their message on cloud security. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Amazon Web Services will file an injunction to stop the Defense Department from issuing task orders on the Jedi Cloud contract. The department says it'll start work on the contract February 11th. NextGov reports AWS wants Judge Patricia Campbell-Smith to issue the injunction to stop the work before that date. The Navy will need a bigger portion of the Defense Department's budget to grow its fleet and execute the national defense strategy, according to the Chief of Naval Operations. Admiral Michael Gilday says the distribution the Navy will need is similar to the 1980s when the Navy was building the Ohio-class submarine program. Defense News reports in recent decades the Army, Air Force, and Navy have each gotten about a third of the Pentagon budget. More on that story in a moment. SAIC can start work on a cloud computing contract for the Air Force that Lidos protested. The Government Accountability Office denied the protest because Lidos had a conflict of interest through a subcontractor. FedScoop reports the five-year contract could be worth up to $727 million. The Navy's 10-year plan includes a 355-ship fleet that the department still needs to find a way to pay for. The Heritage Foundation's 2020 Index of Military Strength suggests that if the Navy wants to meet recommended strength levels, we're going to need a bigger fleet. Lieutenant Colonel Dakota Wood, U.S. Marine Corps retired, is Senior Research Fellow for Defense Programs at the Heritage Foundation. He's editor of the Index. Dakota, welcome back. It's great to see you. Hey, great to be with you. What's your sense of the disconnect that Admiral Gilday talked about at the Surface Navy Association between where we are today as you've assessed in the index, right. and where he wants to get to, and where Secretary, Acting Secretary Modley wants to get to in a 355-ship fleet. Well, you know, the Navy looks at demand, right? Yeah. Where do you want ships to be, and how many ships do you need to have in that area to actually do the job that you're wanting to do? And then they turn and they look at the fleet that they currently have, and there's a huge gap between the two. I mean, 200 Navy ships or so today, they've estimated in the past uh, needing four, almost 460. At the end of the Cold War, we had almost 600 ships just because of the need for presence and combat casualties and those sorts of things, right? So 460, not financially achievable mm -hmm. in a budget environment. They scaled it back and they said to do the minimum required, we need 355. So that's where that number really comes from. So jumping from 290 to 355 is a huge increase in shipbuilding and the manufacturing sector and then the money associated with that. And then you've got this huge debate between the Navy and outfits like uh, Congressional Research Service, GAO and CBO, Congressional mm -hmm. Budget Office, where the Navy, uh, according to CBO, for example, is underestimating the costs and uh, these other government organizations are saying it's going to be more expensive. So the short story is the Navy will need almost a 50% increase in annual funding uh, relative to their average of about 14 billion a year. I mean, you're talking 20, 24, upwards of 30 billion as you get into the late 2020s. The question that you posed there, and I think you phrased it rhetorically, but I think it's important to talk about, mm -hmm. is the question that Admiral Richardson discussed as CNO, and now we're seeing Admiral Gilday start to talk about it. The number's one thing, yeah. and, and we can go anywhere on the range that has been discussed. 
what do we want the fleet to do is the more right. important question because if we have if, to, to fill that gap from 280 to 355 if we were to build 50 frigates that doesn't necessarily mean anything as right. far as what we want to accomplish via the national defense strategy right yeah so if it's big ocean fighting uh, or you think it's going to be long-range missile strikes you need really kind of big ships you know large destroyers cruiser class that sort of thing if you're inside the south china sea if you want to go into the baltic sea or up at the mediterranean distances are shorter uh, draft uh, becomes an issue because of just some of the shallower waters. So it's a smaller sort of ship, you know, mm -hmm. shorter legs and distances. So this fleet architecture, and the Navy should be dropping their force structure uh, assessment here in the next week or two, and they'll talk about what does that fleet look like? You know, is it unmanned, a lot of small things, so you can do distributed operations, or is a fewer number of very large ships, which you really need for endurance and distance, packing a lot of power, you know, in these uh, types of platforms. So this big debate, you know, about what kind of ship and how many of those types of ships that you build has really has not yet been resolved. And then you've got the Marine Corps now coming mm -hmm. in and saying, look, we're re-envisioning what it means to contribute to naval power projection, right? And we think we can do that with a different fleet architecture that supports amphibious operations in the contested littorals. So it's another variable that's mm -hmm. really been thrown into the mix, and we'll have to see what the Navy says here in the next uh, couple of weeks. With all of those variables and the debate that you're, dis that you're mm -hmm. mentioning, one place there's a debate seems to be between the Navy Department and the Office of Management and Budget. What do you make of that back and forth in the context of all the things we've well, talked you know, about? Well, OMB today? is going to try to execute the president's plan, mm -hmm. right? Whichever president it is, you know, Reagan, Clinton, Obama, Trump, whoever. Uh, and so they're going to have a certain budget cap, you know, in the national budget, how much goes to all the different programs that are ongoing. And so when the White House through OMB comes back with a cap and we don't want to spend more than X about a month, now you're fighting uh, within you know the Pentagon mm -hmm. for how do you distribute those funds? You know, our position at Heritage is that the defense budget is just too low relative to historical usage. I mean, we're not just inventing things, right? So if you're back in an era of great power competition, if you'd buy the national defense strategy issued under uh, Mattis's tenure as SecDef, uh, you know we've gotten used to smaller budgets relative to workload because you're fighting terrorist groups with no navies, no air forces, no artillery, no armor, none of that. You know, so we could do what we needed to do with a smaller force. But if you're going potentially against China or a nuclear North Korea or Iran or Russia, um, you know, these are big boy sorts of fights. And so you need a military that's equipped to do that, if for no other reason to, to deter the opponent because they think that you can actually bring something to the fight. We have about a minute left, Dakota, and that takes us full circle to sure. Admiral Gilday's comments yesterday, which basically was an argument for why the one-third, one-third, one-third <clears throat> formula that we've seen over the last decade or so, maybe a little longer, right. doesn't work. And he referred back, as I mentioned in the headlines, to the Reagan era where the Navy had a bigger chunk of the action in the 1980s. Yeah, so where do you think the fight's going to unfold? Is mm -hmm. it more of a land, air kind of thing in Europe? Is it more maritime? naval and the Indo-Pacific, everybody's saying that our future is in the Indo-Pacific region. China is the big actor out there. Uh, yes, a role for land power, but it seems to be more naval and air, right? And so again, you look at a smaller fleet, uh, over half of the fleet is greater than 20 years old. All of the Los Angeles class, almost all of the carriers, all the ballistic missile submarines are all 20 years plus old. So we need to recapitalize this fleet 
huge amounts of money, and you're just not going to be able to get there with current budget levels. Dakota, thanks very much for coming on. Great to have Thank you back. You. Up next, the Space Force is getting off the ground. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the Force's new leadership and the organization structure that's in the works. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Back, General Jay Raymond is building out the infrastructure of the Space Force as its first chief of space operations. He has less than three weeks to create an organizational chart and get it to Congress. Marty Whalen is senior vice president of the Defense Systems Group at the Aerospace Corporation. Marty, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to see you again. Why you. is it important that this is the first step for the Space Force for General Raymond to build out? Well, for General Raymond, he's got to spend some time to lay out what's in and what's out in the organization. The space enterprise is large in the Department of Defense, all the services, the intelligence community. So shaping what, what we're going to, he's going to start with is very important. Um, the report was asked for by Congress really for that purpose, to, you know, what are you starting with and what are we going to build to? Um, while it's due in three weeks, they understood in, in the Air Force that this question was coming. Mm -hmm. While they didn't know the final legislation, it was clear that they were, there was going to be an ask for something. So in the summer of 2019, people started looking at this and doing some analysis. analysis. So it was very important for them to, to, to shape this. General Raymond is in the midst of getting the final briefs from people in Colorado and people here in the, in the D.C. area, and he'll make a recommendation up through the chain of command to be able to get the report back to Congress. One of the major points of contention as all of this started to unwind, as, as you just discussed, was what happens to the space pieces that live in the Army and that live in the Navy and will everything that's in the Air Force move underneath the Space Force? Do we have a sense of what that looks like now, either through action that the, the Space Force people have undertaken or the legislation that's come through or any of that? So, so uh, because of our relationship with General Raymond and the, the, the Air Force, I spent a long part of my career as a space officer in the Air Force and, and, and consider General Raymond a friend. Um, I, I kind of know the things he's thinking through and and what is really first and foremost in his mind is the threat and so understanding that there's a threat out there it is real and he has to act on it he's really focused on moving out mm -hmm. the parts he controls quickly is what was known as Air Force Space Command and so that's what they'll start building at, uh, at building from um, but the Air Force did a great job of supporting the space mission for years, and uh, so the space community didn't grow many of the elements because the big Air Force supported that. So what needs to be uh, supported by the Air Force and what needs to be performed by the Space Force is the ongoing dialogue. They're at the final stages. Um, um, and the best part of this is none of these decisions are really final. Uh, it's a start, mm -hmm. and it's a start focused on outpacing the threat. And that's where I wanted to go next is how important is it that all of this stuff is absolutely perfect at the word go and how much, you know, how much of it's a science, how much of it is an art that as things progress and the force evolves, 
we can kind of shift the shells around to make them fit where we want them to. So probably the most important thing that can't break is the, the mission. The mission that's being performed today by people who formerly were in Air Force Space Command and now they're, they're part of this, this Space Force, uh, they uh, operate the missions like the Global Positioning System, Communication System, Missile Warning Systems, which came into uh, significant play just recently. Um, General Raymond has to make sure that doesn't break. Mm -hmm. he, he, as the commander of uh, the, the chief of space operations of the Space Force, provides those forces to U.S. Space Command. By the way, he's also the commander of the U.S. Space Command, so he wants to make sure he delivers a quality product to himself. Mm -hmm. um, so that will be first and foremost that you don't break anything and the, the quality of the mission happens. Then you start working on the other parts of, of how you build for the future, understanding the threat, getting the budgets aligned, getting the, the civilian and military people trained to go forward. In that realm of building for the future, what will you watch as somebody with a history here and an understanding of delivering on mission so that the force is set up to deliver on the mission five years out, ten years out, and so on? So, so in the long run, the, the important thing to be watching is, are they building the capability that deters any adversary? Are you strong enough to be able to, to fight and win if a war were to extend to space? Um, and, and a big, the measure end of that will be actions by adversaries, but also um, the involvement of coalition partners. Uh, everywhere else, in every other domain, the U.S. military fights in a coalition. Uh, space has been uniquely U.S. U.S. Air Force. It's grown to the other services within the Air Force. And in recent years, when General Raymond was a three-star, um, he started bringing coalition partners into the operations center. So this is something that he's been working on for years, and I think you'll see that continue to grow. The other thing to watch is the stand-up of the U.S. Space Force, General Raymond being in charge, and he's also in charge of U.S. Space Command. As going forward beyond him, that uh, unique relationship won't be there. So they have to put the mechanisms in place to keep the connective tissues between the service and the combatant command when the, the next chief of space operations gets named. We have about 30 seconds left. You mentioned partners. Are the partners that we work with in uh, other types of uh, war fighting the same partners that we're going to be working with in space? For the most part, yes. And, and everybody has different levels of contribution. Sometimes it's just manpower, but there's other countries that have communications and ISR assets. They can contribute to a coalition as we fight. Marty, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you. Thank you, Francis. Up next, the Navy's new recruitment and retention strategy for civilians. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a look at the department's new human capital strategy. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Back, the Navy has a new plan for recruiting and retaining the civilians it needs to support the sailors at the tip of the spear. The new civilian human capital strategy will focus on curating talent, developing skills for the future, strengthening future talent, enabling technology, and utilizing data. Megan Eckstein is deputy editor for USNI News. Scott Massioni is defense reporter 
for Federal News Network. Welcome both. Thanks for coming on. Megan, I'll start with you. What's kind of the thumbnail, the overview of this new strategy? Yeah, thank you for having us to talk about this. Uh, so the services have acknowledged for a while that they are having challenges on the uniform side, um, attracting and retaining qualified personnel. This is sort of an acknowledgement from the Navy that they have the same issues on the civilian side. Uh, people who are coming in um, may not have access to all the same technologies, you know, uh, fancy things that industry can offer in the Navy, and so they're really taking a hard look at how to attract the best personnel and keep them wanting to make a career with the Navy versus going off to industry where they could possibly make more money. Are there new elements to this strategy, Scott, or is it just new that the Navy has a civilian personnel strategy? Well, this is the first update that they've had in about 10 years, but I think it's, it's really an acknowledgement of the 21st century. Like Megan said, you know, the military has been trying to update their policy. Well, in the civilian world, uh, 21st century people want to use their cell phones. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of hard in the, uh, the government sometimes. Uh, another thing is that uh, people want an acknowledgement that they have a family, that they need a work-life balance, and that's something that this really tries to get at a little bit as well, and augmenting what they do with technology and, and making that sort of help the way they do their jobs. There are five anchors in this strategy that the Navy says it wants to focus on in the next decade. Tell me about those and what we know about how they're going to go about trying to implement them. Yeah, this sort of kind of builds on, the, you know, formerly they would talk about recruiting, uh, training, and retaining. This kind of elaborates on this. Um, you know, it's really about finding not necessarily people who meet traditional requirements. Uh, you know, the federal hiring process is obviously very rigid, but this is kind of taking another look at it and saying, what broader skills do we want? Do we want somebody who's uh, well-versed in, you know, data data code writing? Um, do we want somebody who has the creativity to think about how to apply software to do their job better? So there are other skills beyond what you might traditionally find um, you know, in a, in a job application online, um, and the Navy's really trying to think hard about what else will benefit their workforce. To the point that Megan just made, Scott, as I read both of your reporting on this, it strikes me that this is a modernization attempt that the Navy is taking here. They're not saying, how do we get more of these grades and, and jobs that we already have, but what do we want the civilian workforce to look like, the same way they're looking at what do we want sailors and Marines force, forces to look like, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, and trying to build that out. Am I reading it right? Yeah, well, the whole point of this is that there's a 355-ship Navy that they want in 2030, and to do that, they're going to need a civilian force, like you said in the beginning, to support that. And in order to do that, they're going to need people that aren't 65 or 75 years old, which is what the majority of the workforce at this point is 55 years old or older. So they need to bring in and attract new talent that is uh, excited to work there. And to do that, you need to change your job description to something that is a little more like, say, what Google does. I know that's a, a little trite to say at this mm -hmm. point because the military has been trying to, to do that itself, but it really is true. You know, how can you um, make people bring code into things as simple as HR? Easy on the 55-plus workforce, <laughs> Scott. Be nice to your host. Um, what, what will we see? How will we see this move forward? There are pilot programs in place that you've both written about uh, that we'll, we'll see rolling out. What will they look like? What will they address? Uh, the pilot programs are sort of with the idea that you don't want to make a wholesale change, say, you know, we're going to rely strictly on artificial intelligence to help us sift through applications, because uh, it may not work. Mm -hmm. So they want to find very targeted ways of saying, we think we like this idea, let's try it in a very specific command, in a very specific circumstance, and see what happens, and then learn from that experience and see how maybe we could apply it smartly throughout the force. Do we have a sense of how they want to try to scale these, uh, Scott, or does it depend on the results that they get from 
from the pilots. It's very dependent on the results. And, and the way they're doing it, they're saying there could be up to 15 pilots. And what they're going to do is they're going to have a task force in the next three months that'll sort of set up and look at how these pilots are going to work, what they're going to do. And then after that, there's going to be six months of sort of phasing these in to inform the change that may happen. So a lot of if ands or buts kind of going into things, but the whole point is to make sure they don't just jump the gun and, and make sure that they uh, get something good in there that actually helps and, and is uh, productive. One of the first things that Tom Modley did when he became the Undersecretary of the Navy was looked at the, whole, uh, the wholesale way that the Navy educates its officers and, and uh, recruits. What's the education component or the training component of this civilian strategy? Uh, they're very connected, actually. Um, so the idea with one of the anchors is that, you know, technology is evolving rapidly and we need our workforce to evolve with it. But they don't want to say, okay, you need to learn the skill. We're going to send you to school for two years to do it. So part of what the chief learning officer of the Navy will do is find ways to incorporate learning into people's everyday experiences, whether it's through, you know, modules on a tablet or whatever the case may be. The chief learning officer is looking at that. And those results will be applied to the civilian side as well, trying to help them gain skills, uh, keep modern, any ways to improve their, their work experience. About 30 seconds left, so a quick thought from each of you. Scott, start with you. What would you watch as this moves forward? I'd be looking at the pilot programs for sure, but then also how the civilians are going to be responding. Are there going to be more people joining the Navy? Are there going to be more people excited about it? And how they're going to get those people into the Navy because they're going to need them. Megan? Uh, I'm curious to see how the different types of civilians uh, implement this. You know, the civilians do everything from maintaining jets to building ships to, uh, you know, writing computer, computer code. And so they'll all implement this in different ways. Uh, this is really kind of a broad framework with themes that everybody can apply differently. Megan and Scott, thanks both very much. Thank, Thank you. you. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You can subscribe to the program every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News. And Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data, presenting this message on cloud security. I'm Government Matters Director of Content George Jackson here again with Sean Applegate, Chief Technology Officer at Swish, and Jeremy Castleman, Cloud Security Specialist at Checkpoint. Sean, give our listeners some best practices for achieving a consistent security posture in the public cloud. Absolutely. So in public cloud, we have many different cloud providers. They have different security controls and mechanisms. To be able to control those in a single agency, we want to be able to gain visibility into your assets, your inventory and your cloud environments, those different components, if you will. Using Checkpoint Dome 9, this allows us to assess and gain visibility across all of your cloud environment and their controls. It also allows us to run some quick remediations against the NIST policies to make sure you're compliant and easily report on those so you know exactly where you're at to start with. Uh, Jeremy, he touched on this a little bit, but what about regulatory compliance challenges here? What do you see as potential 
hurdles? Well, it is a tremendous challenge. Uh, it's at the forefront of most of the conversations we have today. Not only do you need to ensure compliance of your internal security policies, but you also have to meet those regulatory compliance standards, like Sean mentioned with Nest or PII. With Checkpoint's Dome 9 solution, we have a full inventory of your environment and how everything is configured already, so it's simple for us to go ahead and provide NIST compliance rule sets, for example, right out of the box. Our experts will keep those rules up to date for you, and you can simply run your assessment on your cloud platforms, and it provides you the full audit-ready report. Okay, so Sean, let's talk remediation. How should these agencies respond if they, say, fail a compliance assessment? Yeah, there's really two ways to approach that. One, take the report in Dome 9 and use the step-by-step -step directions provided, so the just-in-time education, to correct those findings. Or two, leverage the technology to do auto-remediation. So as soon as you make misconfigurations or skip something, it'll take the actions to correct that. And lastly, the tamper protection capabilities really protect your administrators and those privileged accounts so that third-party hackers can't get access to those and masquerade as them in the public cloud. So again, use the reporting, the auto-remediation, and the tamper protection to protect yourselves. Great information. Sean, Jeremy, thanks for being here. For more, head to govmatters.tv slash swish. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.